0: Allegedly, it said that, that you left him in a bloody pulp. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he was high. It, it, it says that... uh all was on his private jet or something like that? Whoa. That. yeah, that was pretty serious. You starting to say all these big words. I'm t- starting to take it as disrespect. Adrian no longer speaks English. He speaks brownish songs.
1: So today we've got to start with Deontay Wilder, and it's sad to watch. It's 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 crazy to watch, but the strange thing about what we're seeing from Deontay Wilder is is just the public manifestation of something that happens a lot in the sport of boxing, but it just happens behind the scenes. You know, we're coming up to a year. Um, it's just over a week now till the year anniversary of Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury too. And was still talking about how Wilder was hard done by in that fight. Now go back and watch it. Wilder couldn't do anything. There's nothing he could do against the Fury who set out to destroy him. You know, as much as tyson fury plays the clown what a lot of people don't understand and i only found this out cuz i know you know we've got people in common tyson takes defeat personally tyson took being snubbed for the 2008 olympics personally that's why the david price things a big deal like those two were notorious for trying to take each other's heads off in sparring Because Fury doesn't like the fact that someone he considers to be worse than him was going to the Olympics. He did not like that. So when people say Fury was ducking the David Price fight, he never was because he genuinely believed he was better than Price. In the same way, he genuinely believed he was better than Deontay Wilder and the pain of being handed a draw drove him to new levels, right? He reacted the way a champion does. He said, right, I'm going to make changes. And that's exactly what he did. He made changes. But I have personally no issue with Ben Davidson. I think Ben Davidson's a good young trainer. But young trainers don't do those sorts of fights. You can't have a young trainer in that situation. That's where you need a grizzled veteran. Because in the first fight, Tyson Fury needed someone to tell him, mate, hey, this game plan's going well but there are opportunities to take this guy out. You've got to step on the accelerator. And that's what should have happened. I think the fact that Fury was boxing, in some cases in third gear, left him vulnerable because it was so easy in there, he could switch off. And he realized that, and that's why he made the right changes in his team. And you could see with Sugar Hill, he was never switched off. But Tyson Fury approached it like a winner. And he said, look, I'm going to use this setback to fuel improvements in my training and my approach to this thing. Because if I'm getting a draw against Wilder, God, what's going to happen against Joshua? That fear kicks in. That real fear of being humiliated and losing that battle of Britain. And Fury understands. The road to Joshua began the day after that draw with Wilder. But if you go back... What was the wildest side of that? The count was too long. He let Fury get his senses back. He was helping Fury. The ref wasn't refing the fight. He wasn't doing this. He wasn't doing that. I'm going to say this so we're absolutely clear. Tyson Fury wasn't meant to get up from that punch. Not after five minutes. Not after 50 minutes. So slow count or not, the fact that Fury was able to get up well before the 10 count and be on his feet in time. Maybe that's what broke Wilder psychologically when he realized there was someone who could get up from his punch. Now, that was a clear message and that was a message that said, I might not be able to knock this guy out. I might need another way to deal with Tyson Fury. And that's when you need someone like Mark Breland. And you go to someone like Mark Breland, who, from my personal experience with Mark Breland, is a hell of a boxing man. Let's not forget, this is a man who was, what, 1984 Olympic gold medalist? He might have been voted boxer of the tournament, I can't remember, but he was definitely one of the best amateurs in the world at that point. His career didn't quite hit those heights, but it's understandable. He was special, and remember, this is a team that had Holyfield and it also had Pernell Whitaker. And Breland was head and shoulders above those guys. Maybe not the best trainer in New York at the time, rest in peace, Sean Razor, but he was a hell of a boxing man. And he was the perfect guy for Wilder to go and learn from. And that clearly didn't happen. And that's what you saw in the second fight, where Tyson ran over him, reversed over, ran over him again. And so we have a year of belly aching and delusion and this, that, and the other, which is just embarrassing because a lot of us were Wilder fans and we liked how he conducted himself. And this last year has rolled a lot of that goodwill back. And so we come to what's been happening this week. So the event starts off with Mark Breland jumping on Tunde and Spencer's show and giving his side of of events, Mm. Part fact, part emotion, but we kind of got the gist of it. He's not happy. Anything's Deontay's over. Now, rule number one: when you do a podcast with a guest, do not let your guest hang themselves. Whatever you do, do not let your guest hang in, hang themselves ever. How Spencer and Tunde, who claimed to be boxing people, didn't realize that Mark Breland shouldn't be saying Deontay's done for two reasons. Reason number one, you're going to piss Al Heyman off because Al's still going to get his money back off Deontay. And number two, and this is the one, this is the kicker: you're ruining potentially the second biggest fight in boxing. You know I mean, they let they let Mark Breeland shoot shoot himself in the foot, and you you remember go back to the toe to toe days where Spencer was. He was, he was up Thingy's backside. He was up Mark Breeden's backside all the time. And they showed, they showed him very little respect, which is ironic considering Tunde was unhappy with Boxing Social. Pretty much for similar reasons. So Mark goes out, right? He does the interview. It's clearly not received well by the powers that be, and people say, listen, you might never work in boxing again if you don't clean this up. So Mark has to come back out in the media and apologize and say, his head was in the wrong space, and and he had to walk back. He had to take a few steps back from what he said about Wilder being done. But the damage is done by that point. You've told us what you've seen, and based on what you've seen, you don't believe this guy can come back. All right? Hey, own your truth. So then Deontay's got to do the media rounds now, where he's got to, and I never understand this. Like, there are ways to do things, and, and bashing Mark Breed is not going to do anything for your reputation. You know, if you can refute him factually, fine. But, you know, it was, just, it was just the same thing we heard before. And so, you now wonder is that the end of Wilder as that fearsome punching machine? Because when you look at his box threat record, it still looks good. Amongst the elite heavyweights, he still looks good with his record. He's got the second best record after Fury, for me. And I know people talk about, look at what Joshua's done and so forth, but for that top end, for what he did to Ortiz twice in Brazil, he hit levels I don't think Joshua could. Simple as. He hit levels I don't think Joshua could. And definitely not this timid, moonwalking Joshua that we're seeing in the ring. But he's ruining it by not understanding that you're supposed to go away and get better. Yes, we'll laugh at you, we'll make the memes, but we do that in the hope that you'll come back and you'll make someone into the meme. You know? Wilder wasn't making noise when Stavern was the meme. When Ortiz was the meme. He was happy with that. He was laughing, smiling and joking. But when it was him, he he struggled with it. And that's not what you want to see in your boxers. Now, in terms of the stuff that we were hearing, so I always worry when I hear a boxer does what they want in the gym. Because that's when you know you're close to the end. So... Remember when they kept this all hidden about James DeGale doing what he wanted in the gym and they used to keep this hidden. He'd train at his own time. He'd do his own work and so forth. But James is a talented boxer. James is one of those lifelong boxers. He's a boxing lifer. He can get away with it in a way that Wilder can't because James can make adjustments in a ring. You know, He's not relying on just power. He's got a chin and he can, he can navigate his way through a fight. But these guys aren't the only ones. You know, when I heard this Wilder trains when he won, sometimes if he doesn't feel like training, you can't make him do things. He doesn't work on his jab. He doesn't hit the heavy bag. That's crazy. And the reason it's crazy, and here's as with my training head on, here's what frustrates me. You have to show respect to the sport. You have to. It's almost like it's like a prayer, right? It's like a prayer you got to go in and you've got to go, okay, I understand that the greats that went before me worked on their jab. Ali, Foreman, Holmes, Norton, Marciano, Primo Canera, whoever you want to name, they worked on their jab. They hit the heavy bag. They ran. They skipped. They did all of these things, not because they particularly wanted to. But because the greats before them had done it, they paid respect to the sport and they said the sport is bigger than me. And so when I hear that a boxer is not skipping, they're not running, they're not hitting the heavy bag, I know they're not working. This whole thing of I'm blessed by God and this is rubbish. Don't buy into that. I'm anointed by God. No. The only person I can think who can get away with that is someone like a James Tony, a guy who just posts up and spas. But he's just keeping his skills sharp and he's, he's getting the work in. So contrast what we heard from Mark Breland with what Tyson Fury did, where he reassessed his camp, spoke to those close to him, and he made decisions and he was quick. Now contrast that with Wilder, where He wasn't between the first and the second fight. He wasn't decisive like Fury was, and now you wonder. Okay, so what's next now? What, what in your thirties? You're going to start working hard now. You can't, and the problem you've got is against someone like Joshua, who works hard, and this is where you got to tip your hat off to Anthony Joshua. Whether you like him or not, tip your hat off to Anthony Joshua. He does not miss sessions. He puts that work in. And he, he's always trying to learn. That's what great fighters do. They come in and they go, what are we working on today? But I can name you boxers who would rather be sat in a hotel room eating bonbons. I can name you boxers who will just ring in and go, I don't feel like it today. I know boxers who have texted their trainer about going, I'll see you when I see you. And trainers swallow it. You know why they swallow it? Their their positions are so precarious, they dare not lose out on those paychecks. We saw that with Manny Robles. He let Andy Ruiz do what he wanted because he was so scared of losing the money. But you lost the fighter anyway. I don't imagine the Reynosos will let him get away with that. So what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is a lot of your favorite boxers are not serious trainers after a certain point. Once, it, once a degree of comfort creeps in, once a bit of notoriety, once life gets a bit easier than it used to be, they start trying to call the shots. And a lot of trainers are weak because of the position they're in. You can't jerk someone like Jimmy Tibbs around because Jimmy Tibbs doesn't need the money. Tony Sims doesn't need the money. Peter Sims doesn't need the money. You can't jerk these guys around. That's the cold hard reality. But other trainers do need the money because their gyms are expensive. So you can't lose your big billers and you have to to do pads on a boat. Despite your better judgment, you have to do these things. So next time you hear some... Listen... A lot of these guys don't work that hard because, like Dan Aziz will tell you, Andre Sterling will tell you, Brian Robinson will tell you, Denzel Bentley will tell you, the grind of a training camp is brutal on the body, it's merciless. But when you're hungry to be great, when you're hungry for that title, when you're hungry for the trappings of success, you'll go through it but it feels different when you get successful. You want to be at the after party. You want to be at the premiere. You want to be around the famous people that you idolized and wished you could be at the parties. Now you're there. You're making the most of it. We saw Ruiz do that. Spectacularly. Meanwhile, Joshua just knuckles down and goes, I'm a boxing guy. Until I retire, this is me. This is my job. My friends go to work every day. I go to work every day. And that's why you have to respect the man that is Anthony Joshua. Deontay Wilder's embarrassed himself. I don't think you get it back. Like, even if he were to fight Fury again, and I think that's looking like a remote shot now because it doesn't make sense in the big scheme of things. I think Wilder could be really, really smart. And he could hold that court case over Fury, and in the meantime, fight Charles Martin, hopefully do him in a round or two, re-establish Deontay Wilder as a serious contender, and then say, I'm going to put pressure on Joshua from the IBF route and on Fury from the WBC route. That's how you get back in. You don't get back in by bellyaching and doing all of this. You know, as Dennis Hobson and Porky like to say, you scheme, you don't scream. And it was just, I don't like seeing things like that. I'm a guy where you've got to use the pain of defeat as fuel for your success. And for me, Wilder failed. So the reason this is all very important for me is deeper than Deontay Wilder. I can I can kind of literally give or take Wilder. I'm not that bothered. It's that Daniel Dubois is now back in the spotlight. And his defeat was a bit more chastening because he sustained what could be a career-threatening injury were it to happen again. Now, why do I worry about Daniel? Here's why. Daniel Dubois is an incredibly talented kid, driven, has done so much in the sport, such a young man and he's given so much he's he's the guy we all wanted to get behind and watch him rise to the top and fight Joshua there's no question about that and that's still in him but the coach in me always looks at him and goes do you really want to box are you doing this for you or are you doing this because you're the guy that can have the most lucrative career in your family and you can help take care of your family and if so that's a lot of pressure to carry It's even more pressure when you don't enjoy the sport. And with Daniel, it's really hard because I don't even think Daniel Dubois has got a phone number. He's a hard guy to get hold of. He's not a guy you can just message on social media and go, Hi, he's not accessible like that to, to know what he thinks. But he's talented. He's really, really talented. And when people say, Terry, what went wrong? You were touting him as being the best thing in the world. And I can only give you my theory and what I think went wrong. So when you train boxers, some, some are really good leaders, some are really good chasers. What do I mean by that? Billy Joe Saunders. Billy loves being better than people. He's a guy that has to be the best guy in the gym. That's what gets him going. The fear that someone could be better than him. He loves leading. He loves that pressure. There are other guys who, like Daniel, who like there to be someone better than him, so he can aim for that. Daniel Dubois is the sort of guy that, if you were to bash him up in sparring, he'd be back next week. And upon his return, he'll be a completely different monster. That is what got him his reputation. The fact that he could just deal with people who were meant to be better than him. That's why the Joshua story was so good because there's young Daniel putting hands on Joshua. There's young Daniel putting hands on Martin Bacoli. That's what made those stories really good. So what happened with Daniel, from what I can see as an outsider looking in, he became the top guy in his gym. And so he had nothing to chase. And now training's just repetitive, it's a grind because you're like, well, who am I doing this to be better than? I can't see them. I need to see them, and I need to see them doing this so I know I can do more. And that's why I was always surprised that they never let Daniel go into camp with fury on a consistent basis, with even like a Brazil, even like a, just whoever, all these top guys. Let, let Daniel go and spend weeks with Luis Ortiz. Let him go in with guys who are meant to be better than him, Joseph Parker. Let him chase those guys. That's how he gets better. Because he's quite self-directed. That's what I, and I've seen this up close. When he heard that there was a kid, Courtney Bennett, who was making noise, Daniel came down to the gym to go, let me see for myself. And he tested it and he found out, he found out what he needed to find out, and that was, you know, that was that. And he did that with all these big names. He went after them. And if you ask Daniel now, he'd love to spar Adelaide. Of course. He's like, I want to see what he's about. I remember when JP sparred Daniel and he was like, Yeah, I gave him a hard time. But then he came back. That's what Daniel needs. He doesn't want to be the best guy in the gym. He should have been around a guy like Chisora. That's what he should have been around until he got to a point where he was better than Chisora. Then you've got to get someone in who's better than that. And so what's happened is he's probably stagnated for the last two years because there's no one to really bring out the best in him. So it looks like Team Dubois, and I think it's a collective effort, they've realized that The Peacock wasn't working for him. As I keep saying, I don't think Martin Bowers is a bad trainer. I don't think Martin Bowers was the right trainer for Daniel Dubois, but that doesn't mean he is a bad trainer. Dubois' problem is this. He needs to be in a world-class environment. The Peacock isn't a world-class environment. It's a good environment, and it will get you to a British title. But you're not among the elite. That's why Canelo trains with Ryan Garcia, Oscar Valdez and Andy, uh, Andy Ruiz Jr. You make the environment elite because that forces the standards up for everybody. And that's what Daniel needs to find with his next trainer. I've heard the rumors about Mark Tibbs being you know, tapped up to train Daniel. But that feels like they're, they're keeping the money in-house, right? Because the Tibbs and the Bowers, they know each other. They're families who you know I mean, shake hands and all that. They know each other. But that's not what Daniel needs. And I know there'll be someone who's going to come in and go, he needs to go to Shane. Like everyone does, right? He needs to go to Shane. He needs to go to Adam. He doesn't need to go to either of those guys. That's not it. He might need to go to a new trainer. Just a trainer with the right ideas, who we might not even be thinking of right now. Is it Don Charles? Maybe it is Don. Maybe that's what he needs. Because it's tricky. I don't know if you can put him in with Steve Steve Broughton just yet. Steve's still he's still learning his trade. But Don, I can see Don teaching something different. I know people go, oh, there's Terry just sticking up for his mates. No, but I can see Don Charles giving Daniel different tools and different ideas. And maybe that's what he needs at this point. It's just a different way to go about things. In an environment where Don can call upon a lot of good heavyweights. You know, imagine Daniel Dubois got to spend two, three, four weeks with a Bryant Jennings with a Malik Scott he learned so much but it hasn't happened yet and considering Frank was talking about this being his number one prospect there was no investment in turning him into that number one prospect that's the tragedy here and it's the same thing with Anthony Yard where is the investment in turning these guys into world class talents no boxing fans are asking this question Why do I ask this question? Because I worry about Denzel. Is Frank going to put the money into Denzel to turn him into the African Jamal Charlo, as well as being the black Golovkin? Is he going to invest that money? Will he put the money down that's needed for Denzel to go over to America for a couple of months? Because that's what some of these guys need. They just need a bit of money in their pocket. Look, mate, go out to Vegas for a month. Come back and learn some new tricks. Come back and tell us. But British trainers don't think like that because it's still this... So it's still this command and control mindset that trainers have of, I need to keep my fighters in the confines of my gym because that's how I stop them running away. Livestock. That's all it is, livestock. It's like having fucking goats. You know what I mean? It's like having goats and you just put them in a pen so they can't escape. What do they do? Just walk around in circles and headbutt each other. So this is the test for Frank Warren's organization. In fact, it's a test for British boxing. How many promoters are prepared to do what Dennis did back in the day when he sent Steffi Bull and one of the McDonald's out to Miami to learn? To learn. That's foresight. That's planning. That's investment. That's what breeds loyalty. Not contracts necessarily. Is that investment and in saying, Daniel Dubois, I believe that you are the best prospect in the world. I'm setting aside a budget for you to go out to America and work with these guys. I'm setting out a budget for you to be in camp with all of these guys who would all like to work with you. This will let your eye heal up because you can train in relative safety and protection. And then when your eye's healed up, you should be a different boxer with a different mindset and a different perspective. But I don't think that will happen because once they sign that contract, they sign their souls away. Now, I can't talk about what was in the contract, but those who know, know. Boxing's a dirty sport for contracts. Man, jeez. But that's my worry. My worry is that no one's investing in turning our top quality prospects into elite level boxers. And until they do, we're going to be continually disappointed. But the important thing is, it's on these boxers' shoulders to drive their own careers. You can't look to anyone else to solve your problems now. You know that it's bad. And if you need need to taste the defeat before you realize it, then that's on you. But you've been told. So what I want to do now is just blitz through just a few things I've seen happening in in the world of boxing. So one of the ones <laughs> one of the ones that's really made me laugh has been Eddie Hearn manufacturing this, this superstar amateur career of his where as Eddie Hills or whatever he was called, he was four on O as an amateur, right? Now, this is Eddie Hearn, and I've never heard of Eddie Hearn having a fight. I've been everywhere in London and the Southeast. If he had had a fight, I would know someone who was there, or someone who was either training him or training his opponents. We've yet to find anyone. So Coogan, being the entertainment guru that he is, as opposed to journalist, his own words, not mine now claims he's found the guy, and him and Eddie and this guy, Francis Armstrong, or whatever his name is, got to talk it out. And I just thought, this is embarrassing. How many, how many free tickets to, to the SSC arena did he get for, I mean, concocting this story? Who was Eddie's trainer? Who was this guy's trainer? But the big question for me is this. Where's the Eric Guy video? And everyone in amateur boxing knows what I mean by that. And so for for the boxing fans, in case you feel left out, Eric Guy is a guy in his 60s now. But Eric's filmed virtually every amateur show worth going to for at least the last 25, 30 years. So everyone knows, if you've, if you've fought that night, or if, you're, if I'm a trainer and I want to see someone's fight, I'll say, Eric, have you got this DVD that I can buy off you? He'll do them for 15 quid. Yeah, I'm still paying 15 quid for a DVD. But the reason Eric's important is this. Eric's been videoing for Matchroom for years. For years. He's been, like, you know the pictures you see of Eddie Hearn as a kid? They're Eric Guy pictures where Eddie's in the suit. Those are Eric Guy pictures. So let's, let's, let's run a few scenarios here. Barry Hearn's son is boxing. And nobody had a camcorder that night. Not even Barry, apparently. Really? Barry couldn't ask his mate, Eric Guy. And you've seen Eric Guy talk to Eddie like they know each other. They've known each other since Eddie was a kid. Where's the DVD? And now we're being told, oh, it was just the skills bout. <laughs> Come on, man. Really? That's what we're hearing now? And I'm not trying to besmirch Eddie because the thing about Eddie is if you've ever seen him do like whether it's hitting the bag or hitting the speedball, Eddie can go. Like he's got good technique. He's what's he, 6'5", 17 stone. Like if you put Eddie Hearn in a white collar bout now, I'm sure someone will get hurt. But don't lie about your history. You don't have to. You've proven yourself as a hell of a promoter. Don't lie about your history because we're going to ask questions. Because what he's doing is he's, he's taking all of us as idiots. He's taking all the people who have given their life to the sport. Your guys at like Mark Reigate, Eddie Lamb and so forth. He's taking these guys as idiots. Craig Stanley, Martin Welsh, even young Charlie Harrison. He's taking all of these guys for idiots. Tony Sese. These guys are all being taken for idiots with these stories that he likes to concoct. So, for the Eddie Hearn thing, until I see the Eric Guy DVD somewhere, until I see the footage, I believe they're just doing this to yank the, the boxing fans chain. And as boxing fans, you're choosing to engage with this, man. If, just for that, I would just I'd block IFL from everything, from being honest with you. I'd block him just for trying to lie to you. You know? Until that Eric Guy thing appears, for me, this is all just lies. But on the subject of Eddie, at least he's doing something constructive at lightweight, where he's trying to line up his guys. So I think you're going to have Ryan Garcia, Javier Fortuna, and then Devin Haney versus Jorge Linares. Good fights for both guys, actually. Good names to have on your CV. Both have seen better days. I expect Haney will just grind Linares into the dirt. And like I keep saying to people, Linares is most overrated boxer probably of the last 10 years, 15 years. Physically fragile, mentally fragile. And when Haney really puts the pressure on him, I expect him to melt. Fortuna, a little bit different. He'll stand up, but Garcia will probably put him down. But there will be good fights. But we can't keep delaying the obvious, right? Those two have to fight each other before any of them can talk to Teofimo. Because remember who Teofimo beat? He wasn't supposed to beat Loma. And I don't think the other two guys beat Lomachenko. Definitely not after Loma tasted that defeat. God, no. But let's see where it goes because 1-3-5 is interesting at the moment. Really, really interesting. And then, (laughs) the thing that did put the smile on my face is hearing that Canelo may fight four times this year. And that's very important for boxing because if Canelo were to fight four times this year, it would tell you that all of these guys were lying for all this time that the body can only allow them to fight twice a year and it was always a lie the two fight a year thing came because you had to take the gear have the fight come off the gear let your body reset and go again you needed the three month fallow period between fights at least before you started camp and stuff like that so when they tell you all of this stuff don't believe it If you're a boxer and you box four times a year, you don't need a camp. You're kind of permanently in camp because your weight doesn't fluctuate. If Canelo were to fight four times this year, that might be the most impressive thing a boxer has done. And I don't want to hear people complaining that, oh, it's Yieldrim. you know, it's Yildrim, Billy Joe, um, maybe Benavidez next, and then another soft touch at the end you know, boxing fans are never satisfied and it saddens me that boxing fans don't understand how hard camp actually is. You can't have it both ways. We can't want a clean sport and then tell these guys that they have to go to hell and back in every fight because as boxing fans, that's all we care about. We've created the perverse incentive of demanding these hard fights so these guys have to resort to the drugs to survive the training camp. Training camp shreds your body, your joints, everything. So you're on the anti-inflammatories, you're on the growth hormone to recover, (laughs) shouts out Steve Cunningham. Do you see what I mean? But back to my point, if Canelo were to fight four times this year, I think that's game-changing for boxing. And I'd like to see that become a trend where our better guys can fight at least three times a year because it's not that hard. A couple of fan-friendly fights and maybe someone in the middle that you can just tick over with, like the old guys used to do. No, and it's not padding your record. It's called managing your load throughout your career. It's common sense. But what I will say is I'll never pay fifty dollars to watch Canela versus Yieldrim. <laughs> God no. Um uh just another another tick in Eddie Hearn's box this week. Yo, I'm looking forward to seeing Liam Williams against Demetrius Andrade. I think it's about time we found out how good Liam Williams is. I think Demetrius Andrade is an absolute nightmare for everyone for one very important reason. What a spiteful man he is. A hurtful, spiteful man with those long arms and he boxes out that, that crouch as well. I don't know what Liam's going to be able to do. It might be like another Brian Rose type beating. I hope it's not because I quite like Liam Williams, but you know, there's only so far the syringes can get you before you know it all goes wrong. And on the subject of syringes, shouts out to Steve Cunningham for <laughs> trying to get into a doping debate with me. Um, I don't know why he even tried. Like I gave him the opportunity to bow out gracefully, but as far as I'm concerned, from what I've seen, Steve Cunningham is on the suspicious list for me. I can't say definitively, because I don't want to get sued. He's on my suspicious list. And man, what's he, 43, 44 years old now? And you're telling me he's in the best shape of his life in his 40s after having, what, two or three kids? When everyone else's hormone levels go through the floor after that and suddenly this guy's Superman. And they always try and fob you off by saying you have no direct proof that, that they take drugs. And you're like, well, the only way we could find out if you are taking drugs, Steve Cunningham, is to test you. But you are not a registered athlete, Steve Cunningham. So that means nobody can test you. What do you want me to do? Come in your house and find, I mean, the, the vials of testosterone? Is that what you want me to do? It's, it's ridiculous. You have all the signifiers of somebody using drugs, you have the unusual yet neatly aligned scar tissue in each section of your six pack. That leads me to be suspicious. You have unnaturally capped deltoids, which leads me to be suspicious. You know, all of these guys, these boxers in their forties, who try and tell you that, oh mate, I'm just training every day on just I mean, beans on toast or wheat on toast. They're lying to you. Yeah? Go on YouTube, see all of these guys in their forties telling you how amazing they're doing. The only one I'd believe is Carl Froch, because if you look at Carl Froch, his body's a mess. Compared to where he used to be at his peak, his body's a mess. Carl looks like someone who literally is just training like a guy in his 40s. And he's the same age as Steve Cunningham. And he's a smaller man. Don't get kidded that these guys aren't taking the stuff. And the thing is, because Steve's a civilian, it's fine. The only time we need to get worried is if Steve tells us he's coming back. But like I say, the boxing fans, these guys are all at it. Especially anyone 35 and over who's looking good at it. Yes, even the guy who who shouts loudest about being anti-drugs. Well, he shouts loudest about being anti-everything. There's probably some down in the bowl in his past. Probably some testosterone in his past. But he can hide behind being a skinny fat kid. Oh, well, cool. But Steve Cunningham should have known better. Like, this doping thing, some of us don't play around with that. But it was fun. I enjoyed that one, man. <laughs> if only Danny Connor could be as entertaining as that. I want to close with a question, and I'm putting this out to everyone in my boxing network and everyone that listens to this. So that's guys like, you know, Adam Martin, Sean Earls. Come on, man, you know the guy's Greg Hackett. This is a question for everyone. This will be a test whether you guys pay attention. Is there something wrong with Joshua Boatsy? Because it's occurred to me that in 18 months, he's only fought twice. Now, I don't know if they've got a fight lined up for him in April time, but even then, that would have been, what, three fights in 20 months. And remember, this isn't a guy who's got a, a deep profile. He hasn't got, his career's not that deep. Like he's not even 15 fights in. And I wonder, because he, remember, 2016, he was our most legit guy. He won the bronze medal, kind of against the odds, but my God, he fought well. But now look at the other guys in that 2016 class. Shakur Stevenson. Nay, he's in the stratosphere. Teofimo Lopez in the stratosphere. Where is he? Like even a Coley's kind of shot past him now. Now Coley's probably bang on to win a world title and deservedly. So there's something that's happened with Joshua Bartzi that hasn't been shared publicly, and I don't know if it's a good thing. I don't know if it's a bad thing. I don't know what it is. But there's something not quite right. And if anyone's got a view on that or theory, please feel free to share it because I worry. Like one of the happiest moments, boxing-wise, over the last couple of months for me was the picture that was posted and it had Isaac Dogbo, Denzel Bentley, and Joshua Boatsy. And I thought to myself, think about this picture. I don't know who the fourth guy was, but I said, in Ghana... In a Ghanaian summer or whatever the weather was there. You had two Olympians. You had two British champions. You had one world champion. Like the gold between those guys is amazing. And so I want to see Josh Bartzi get the world title. But something's not quite right. I know there have been challenges around trying to get an opponent. Because it's not cheap. And maybe he's drifted into this. I'll call it the problem, the problem pond because I think Denzel's about to hit that. He's a couple of fights away from hitting that where the fights you need to elevate you are quite expensive. So how much do I think it would cost Boissy to get Callum Johnson? 80, 90 grand? And with no fans, you can't do that. So do you put him on a pay-per-view? Well, who's doing a pay-per-view where you could put Joshua Boatsy on? Joshua hasn't got one lined up yet. Dillian's going to put his people on there. So that's tricky. But you're looking at that, that 80 to 100 grand for the fight that Joshua Boatsy needs, along with the logistical nightmare of getting people into the country. But I just don't want to see the kid drift because he's a, he's a, he's a hell of a talent. But he needs those fights. And that's the thing I worry about with Denzel. Like when I look at Denzel and I go, Felix Cash is going to take the fight. Um, I think Denzel is probably a year ahead of Linus. So that's not really a fight I see happening immediately. So you've got to find Denzel Bentley opponents. And now you've got to start paying a bit more money than maybe you had budgeted for because he moved quickly. But no, no, I'd like to know what's happened to Josh Boatse because I feel he should be further ahead than where he is right now. I'm going to sign off now because I'd quite fancy, you know, getting getting some shut eye. But hopefully, this keeps people occupied. It's, it's, it's a relatively flat week in boxing, but we've got Josh Warrington coming up this weekend. And it would just be good to see some of those guys you know, get a performance in. And let's just get excited because boxing's back on TV again. And then also, shouts out to Big Donald Smith. He's got Aiden Muhammad making his debut on February 27th. So all you guys will be able to critique his coaching abilities. I mean, I I'm a, might I'm a, I'm a beg the board for a license so I, can, so I can be in the corner with him and get myself on TV. Take care, guys.
0: Seriously, you can't tell me that you ain't sick of hype and sick of guys who give a life. Deceive you, even glorifying not living right. They feed it to your kids when they act up, you call them the little shy. These kids on the ends, they listen to their friends It's almost like they live for strife Say don't be a sheep, be a shepherd, live your life Don't give in to the pollution or the confusion they advertise TVs, the gangster life is glamorized. That's why they get a gun and grab a knife And leave somebody sacrifice That's why somebody's mum's mourning mad at life She's hurting, she's mad that life's working But her son ain't around to share all her glory were a part of them crimes but spirits of those they still haunt me it's like they know I've got a gift to pen a deep story so extend and like reach for me and embrace him life goes fast but I'm still pacing why do we crave things that don't even better us as people just makes us worse now you got people who's kind of looked on as unequal and feeling deprived but everyone's got something in common we've all got our lives you're only not content when you look on things you haven't got instead of giving thanks and praise that you've even had a shot Growing up, we didn't have a lot, but it taught me to appreciate, and I'm glad I'm not in war. People competing with each other, buying things they can't afford, with loans that they gotta pay back, and then they start praying to a metaphor. People get stressed.